I'm Stacey Gross, and this is Two Moms Day Drinking. Andrea Hope was born in the Bahamas, lived in the D.C. area throughout high school, went to college in Portland, Oregon, then spent six years working as a representative of the Baha'i faith in Israel, where she met the man who would become her Polish husband. Andrea talks about becoming a first-time mom in a foreign country, living her life as a global citizen, and what the COVID-19 situation was in Poland the week of March 15th, 2020. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I can clean up the echo a little bit. Um, yeah, it's good for me. Yeah. Cool. So where are you from originally in the U.S.? So I'm originally from, uh, ooh. <laughs> I'm originally from Virginia, I would say. I was actually born in the Bahamas um, because my grandmother was uh, living there for a while with my mom. Uh, it was, yeah, kind of a long story, but my mom um, had three daughters and uh, she hadn't finished university yet. And my grandparents were living in, my great-grandparents actually, were living in the Bahamas. And so they had um, asked her to bring us to the Bahamas until she finished university. So, like, get her degree and get herself settled. And then um, and then they would, like, return us. So I actually grew up with my, my great-grandparents in the Bahamas for the first, like, five or six years with my mom visiting, like, and us visiting the U.S. back and forth. And then um, after six, we moved to Virginia. We all moved to Virginia. And so that that's where I'd say I'm, like, I grew up for the most of my life. Wow. So where in the Bahamas were they? What, what city or town? Freeport. How different was it for you to, to go from the Bahamas to the U.S. then? Like, was it a big transition at that time? Um, yeah, I, you know, I was very young, so I don't remember a lot of it. Um, but I do know that, for instance, we had really strong accents when we were young. And so that was something we got teased about. And I remember we lost them really quickly. Like (laughs) we got the feedback, you know, from going to school that that was not cool. And I I remember, yeah, our accents uh, changed quite quickly it's funny because now it'd be so cool to have an accent <laughs> when you're older you know you're like oh it's a little you know you're just trying to fit in and just be understood and so that was one thing I remember our accent and then also my mom really had to um kind of introduce us to the the dynamics of racism in the United States because in the Bahamas pretty much everyone's brown skin or tourist so the um, the how would you say like the um, atmosphere was different like when everyone is the same race I think personality stands out a lot a lot more so uh you know you just know and once you travel you realize that everywhere in the world there are these different types of personalities there's the mothering people and there's the fancy people and there's mean people and there you know there's like all these different kinds of people everywhere regardless of what culture you're from um and different interests and so I think it was like more like that in the Bahamas that you knew people more by personality whereas when we got to the U.S. there was more of an expectation about being brown skin so I think that was something I still haven't gotten used to but that was something that was really a challenge for me because there was this idea that oh because you're brown skin it comes with these certain traits and this certain music and these certain interests (laughs) and I didn't have a lot of those interests I'm not in sports I'm 
I like some hip hop, but I, you know, I, there's a lot of things where I, I really didn't have. I'm always been an artsy writer. Like I was, I've always been really into like John Mayer and like pop music, and I like R and B as I like R and B as well. But yeah, there was there was this this dynamic from both sides from people who were um, Black Americans because they were they kind of owned this culture of this is our culture and you should be a part of this culture and we should be proud of it and we shouldn't try to be like someone else's culture and then also from white americans who are like oh you you're like white you're not black you know and i'm like no i'm still black just because i listen to john may <laughs> or just because i you know do and you know sometimes people would even say it as a compliment oh you're like one of us you know you're just like you know and i'm like what does that mean you know so i think that was the biggest transition for me just like my mom said i used to call people by colors like of items so I would say I would come home and say oh this um this this peach colored lady or something and my mom would be like oh you mean a white lady and I'd be like no she wasn't white she was like peach colored or she, she my mom said her favorite was paper bag colored I'd say oh I was talking to this guy he was like paper bag colored <laughs> my mom was like what color, what color is that so um yeah, I actually wrote an article for kids about it in Brilliant, in Brilliant Star magazine. But yeah, I used to call people by their shade instead of like black or white. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's It's fascinating to hear somebody talk about um, the issue of race in America, but coming from a different place with um, like a child, seeing it through children's eyes, but as an outsider. That's fascinating. Yeah, it gives me a, definitely a different perspective because um, like I said, I feel like I got it from both sides and I know obviously there historically and there still are very much things that are like the responsibility of the majority of the population to uplift and 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 be open and welcome to people who are minorities but like coming from a different perspective I saw the pressure not just from like that side but also from people who look like me and I think um, that's really important because I think it makes sense historically that, okay, black people are typecast as these certain types of people. So I felt like black people in America were like, oh, you're going to like typecast us as this. We're going to own it. It's kind of like with the N word or when people like with the B word, when women say it or own it, where it's like, okay, if you're going to treat us like this, we're going to own this and we're going to be proud of it. So I think there was an aspect of African-American culture where it was like, this is who we are and we're not going to take it as a bad thing. We're going to be proud of it. But then that also meant that when people were doing things outside of that, it felt like to other people that I was trying to be something other than black American. So like, you're trying to be like a white person or you're trying to be like my best friend in high school was um, Filipino. You're trying to be like an Asian person or something, as opposed to like, you just have different interests. So it probably just took me until I left college and I moved to Portland, Oregon, where I was um, more exposed to, or in DC, actually, I was exposed to it a bit too. So probably in DC, in Portland, Oregon, when I moved into the poetry scene, where I was exposed to Black artists. And that was like more where I started to feel that, like, I felt the most welcome, because it was like, okay, it's accepting of my, you know, there is a common struggle or common history to being Black, and I don't deny that. But it was also like, okay, but these people are also artists. And so it was a lot more open um, to, to what people were accepting of us as like, oh, she's a poet. Okay, so then it makes sense that she's quirky or she's weird or, you know, she's a writer or she's a painter or something. Then I, I felt a lot more of that. Like, I remember, yeah, I met this girl 
named Rashida and I felt like so like okay I'm home with her you know like she you you can be proud of being black but you can still have your own thing going on or be different you know so right I that's the reason that I um, gravitated towards the arts as well like it just I never felt like I fit in until you know my first two sets of writing classes in my undergraduate degree and it was like oh my god I found my tribe you know I found my people yeah it's so and I yeah now I look back and I think oh man if I would have known about poetry clubs <laughs> when I was in you know in because I didn't start until I was in college I always wrote poetry and I actually performed poetry at um, my middle school graduation and I got so emotional that I couldn't read my poem. And my mom came up on stage so embarrassing. <laughs> I got so emotional. I was crying and then all my teachers were crying. And then my, they like sent my mom on stage to come hug me or something. It's so ridiculous. But yeah, so I was always like very much into poetry, but I never knew it was something that you could build community around. You know, it's like you study it in English class. Um, but I didn't know until college. I went to some Valentine's Day show and they had musicians and they had poets. And I was like, oh, people read their poetry like <laughs> in front of other people and get claps, you know, and people like it, you know. And I was like, oh, I need to find out more about this. So my college didn't have a spoken word uh, club or anything. But after I left college, awesome. I got into it. Yeah, I re- when I was, I originally went to school for psychology and took the writing classes. That was clearly where I belonged. But I was like, this is not a marketable skill. And then I had one of my professors kind of pull me aside and remind me, you know, you can teach, you can do all kinds of things. And that's when I switched to writing because I was like, oh, my God, this is actually like a viable degree. So changed my life. Yeah. Did they teach you in did did they teach you in that um, when you said because I had thought about for trying to study like writing or acting or something like that or theater. But then I felt like, you know, this is something I'm really passionate about. So I'm going to, it's something I'm going to do anyway. So I thought, okay, I'll learn some other kind of skill. And I know that I'll always do this anyway. But now I wonder, like, in terms of the getting into the business side of it, when you studied writing, did they teach you a lot about that side of it, like publications and marketing and, you know, book contracts? Did they teach you that aspect of it? Not at all. In fact, I learned all of that through going to, um, like, I would go to if they had a writer coming, or if they had a workshop event, you know, sometimes they would have writers or authors come in from other places. And then there would be like a week long workshop um, with that writer. And that's where I learned that kind of stuff. But no, not in the actual writing classes. And I didn't even learn a lot about editing, which surprises me. I mean, I could write by the end of it, but I had no idea. Because that's, that's, for me, that's such a big, that's, well, and I don't feel as bad, but yeah, for me, that's such a big part of it. Like, um, getting into the, okay, I have a story or I'm a, you're a great writer. Um, but learning to deal with rejection or how, how to know how to market or a lot of those things that I would, I would hope that, you know, in the future writing um, degrees or writing programs would teach people that side of it because it's like, okay, great. You can write, but um, so much of it is networking and finding the right people. And I think even for me, when I started doing editing, um, I was, I'm really into poetry, but when I started doing editing, I was kind of like, okay, I'm just going to edit whatever. And you, and you kind of like, just want to make a living. I just wanted to make a living like in the writing world, you know? And then I started, you know, um, watching videos and like trying to like learn more about becoming a, um, a freelance editor. And one of the things that I uh, read said that you should have a niche, you know, in the beginning, it might feel like it's harder, but in the long run, people are going to come to know you for that. And you can, 
market yourself as, you know, you should pick me and not pay me, you know, nothing or not pay me little, like, or pick a general editor because this is my, this is my specialty. And I really took that to heart and I started telling, you know, I started like building just poetry editing and children, I do poetry for children or for adults, like any kind of poetry. Um, but I, now I'm able to say, say to people like, Hey, you know, you should pick me because this is all I, this is what I do. You know, like I'm totally into this field. And if, and I tell people, you know, and if you write something else, I would recommend you finding an editor who edits for articles or dissertations or whatever, you know, because that's not the kind of editor. That's that absolutely I true. That's I. Um, that's something that I never thought about. But you're absolutely right. Having a niche, it makes it a little bit harder in the beginning. But um, you have this skill that no one else has, so you can really make a a good living off of it if you have a like a specialty. And like my the little me is like just constantly amazed that I can actually like get money to read poetry. <laughs> like I think I'm like yeah, my little part of like the little girl in me is just like people are gonna pay me to read their poetry. Wow. <laughs> I mean I I do more than that, obviously. Like <laughs> it feels almost felonious. Like I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Getting it's hard actually when I'm freelancing, I do freelance for a few agencies. I special in like mental health and, and psychology writing. And so when I freelance for companies, I feel bad charging because it doesn't feel like work. It feels weird to charge for that yeah because you're interested in it you know and how I feel like how blessed are we to live in the age that you can do that on your own like you can build your own brand and your own business because I know when we were like growing up it was very much like the secrets of the of the trade you know before YouTube got really popular or um, you know, I you know I remember when AOL like had just first got popular <laughs> and like chat rooms and stuff. You know, so like we grew up in a generation where people were really like th- these were the secrets, these were the industry secrets. And if you didn't have um, if you didn't have uh, access to that either through college, university classes, or through an agent, you don't know why you're getting rejected. You don't know what's going on or how they choose or where where the the market is. And now I just see so many writers who are just like, you know, this isn't for everyone. Maybe what I'm writing isn't for everyone, but there's enough people that it's for that I can still make it and make it work. Whereas when we, I feel like when I was younger, there was no idea of that. Like, oh, if this isn't going to sell to the masses or if they don't believe that it will, then they're not going to accept it. But now people are saying, no, there are other people who are like me who are just into you know I don't know whatever random you know vampire recipes from the dead or whatever (laughs) like and I'm gonna find those people and I'm gonna market to those people and I'm gonna make a living off of it and so I'm I feel really blessed that we're in I mean of course it means that there's a lot more people who are just publishing things that they aren't putting much effort or work into but it means um it means that people who who do have a voice and do and who do have like a worth ethic and a passion um, they can be their own. Yes. They don't have to wait for someone else to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really hard too. when you're trying to make a living in any kind of art, I think to separate from the artist's brain into a marketing or a, a, to be like when I started the podcast to be my own publisher and editor was a really big jump for me. And I had to kind of learn a whole new side of it that I I don't think you would have had to know before. Yeah. When I was in Portland and I, I worked with so many, because it was most people who come to the poetry shows are also artists. If they're not poets, they're photographers or painters or like they're in the art scene. And um, yeah, I really noticed like when I would, I started to organize shows and I really noticed that like, yeah, the organizing, like directing aspect and the being an artist thing are like 
kind of class. I'm like, oh, this is why artists have agents because this isn't the same part of your brain or your soul or whatever that goes. I'm like, yeah, I was like, I just remember, yeah, this is why we have agents <laughs> because, because it's a total different field. Like, you know, working with the venue and, and calling people to make sure they're still coming, even though they said they would, they might not, you know, and making sure, yeah, it's just editing and producing all those things. Yeah. It's just like, either you get to a place where you hire someone to do it or you have to like really invest in the new skill set. Yeah. Yeah. And we are fortunate to live in a time where I can go online and figure out how to market. I can learn a little bit of that without having to hire someone, but it would be so handy to, <laughs> to have a team. Yeah. That's what I'm like, I would like, I'm going to do all this stuff. But like today I was just learning about email marketing. It's like, I'm going to do all this stuff well, I need to do it for myself, but as soon as I can get <laughs> where I can level out to get someone else to do it, I will. I feel the same way with, with my books, like in terms of art, like part of me is like, you know, I could really put in the time because when you don't, you know, have a lot of money, you have, you might have a lot more time. So I could really put in the time to like learn how to do illustration so I could illustrate my own books. But for me, like, knowing how passionate I am about poetry, I would really like to hire someone who's that passionate about illustration. You know, like, I'm not, I don't, like, because I would be doing it because I like art, obviously, but I would be doing it because I need to do it in order to put my book out. Whereas, like, with the book that I did publish, I hired a, a woman, and, like, that's what she does, and you can tell the difference for me. You know, when someone's, like, you know, she's doing this because she's, she's going to be a perfectionist about it. And she's going to really like look at those details where I'm going to be like, okay, maybe I'll draw it three times or 10 times or something. And then eventually that's as good as it's going to get. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I want to get to the place where I can support people in doing their passion, just like, like I want to be supported in doing mine. Right. I totally get that. Hopefully fingers crossed for both of us. And for some people, their passion is marketing, oddly enough. <laughs> Um, how did you wind up in Poland? So tell me a little bit about how you wound up over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never would have. I have always thought about living some, you know, that I might not end up living in the United States, but never Poland. I mean, we didn't even hear that much about Poland. I, I'm being kind by saying we don't hear that much about Poland in the U.S. We don't hear anything <laughs> about Poland. I think maybe the only thing I've ever heard is like Polish sausages, you know, and I don't even really know what that is before I came in. Yeah, so um, the basic, the uh, background behind it is that um, I'm Baha'i. Have you heard of this uh, faith group, the Baha'is? I have Baha heard faith. of it, but I, I know nothing about it. Yes, so, so I'm a Baha'i, so um, I'm trying to think the good order to put it in, so uh, because it kind of, it connects to the whole story. So I'm a Baha'i, and Baha'is believe um, that all of the religions are of one God and that basically Baha'is believe that God sends down different messengers at different times to teach the groups of people um, that, that according to, you know, their maturity and kind of their customs and things like that. So we believe that all of us are worshiping the same God and that these are all teachers of the same God. So the, if you look at the principles of the religion, they're all the same, but the laws are going to be different based on the time period and the maturity. So it's like, if you have a little kid, well, we have kids, you know, you're going to teach them the principle maybe of forgiveness their whole life. But the way that you um, guide them and how to be forgiving is going to be different when they're two, <laughs> you know, forgiveness is for, for a two-year-old is going to look differently in 
in action than it does for a 18 year old or a 30 year old or a 50 year old. So that's how, how Baha'is would say that's the reason for the different laws is that, you know, it looks different for these different communities at different time periods, but the principle is the same. And so just giving this background to say that Baha'is believe that we're all like one people, we have one God, it's one religion in different stages. And because of that, Baha'is are very open to different cultures and different races because one of the quotes is that the earth is one country and mankind its citizens. So Baha'u'llah says that, so there's this mindset that like, of course, you know, we have to deal with passports and everything, whatever, but that, you know, you should act locally, but think globally, like you're a citizen of the whole world. So my, the reason I was born in the Bahamas is that my great grandmother was pioneering to the Bahamas. She and her husband were Baha'is and she got in an accident and um, she needed to move somewhere warmer because she lived in Michigan. So instead of just moving in the United States, she asked the Baha'is, hey, where do they need people that would be warm? <laughs> and so they gave her three options, and one of them was the Bahamas. And so she ended up moving to the Bahamas, and I was um, I was born there, and then I grew up with the faith. I also grew up with the Christian religion. We used to go to Baptist church with my mom and also go to the Baha'i events. And then I got to a certain age where they were like... Um, it was like I could make my own decision, and I decided to keep going to Baha'i things. And um, my mom wanted me to wait until I was 18 to decide because I was really, really, really close to my grandmother, and she didn't want me to like make a decision based on like you know like obligation, which I think was a, a smart a smart thing. But I I already knew you know that I wanted to. So as soon as I turned 18, I think that summer like I I was like okay I'm a Baha'i now, <laughs> um, and. Uh, and so in Haifa, it's the administrative and spiritual center, Haifa Israel of the Baha'i faith, and you can, uh, Baha'is can volunteer to go and help there. So that's like where the shrines are, where people go on pilgrimage, um, and where the administrative center is as well. And so I went in 2012, and then my husband came from Poland in 2013. And so that's how we ended up um, meeting. And we just got to know each other for, uh, I think, a year, when, no, yeah, we met in, like, we met in October when he came, but we didn't really, it didn't really click for me, like, I, like, yeah, I did, or him, I guess, either of us, and then somehow in March, we started hanging out, and then by the next year, we were getting married, um, so yeah, we dated kind of for a year and then we got married and then when we stayed for a few more years and then when it was time to decide where to live I was pregnant <laughs> and so it was between the U.S. and well we were thinking between Europe and the U.S. and it would it just made more sense for us to come to his hometown in Poland um it was just a lot easier. It's so funny because even people in Poland like, oh, why didn't you go to the U.S.? And everyone really expected that we would go to the U.S. And people don't realize it's not so simple Like for him. like He has to have a visa, and I have to prove that I can support him so he's not going to go on welfare. And um, there's a lot of, like, you have to prove your relationship. There's a lot of steps. I think it usually takes people like a year to get their spouse from another country to live in the U.S. with them. So it's not so people just think, oh, because you're married, like, he can just go to the U.S., but it wasn't like that. But it was like that for me in Poland because I have an American passport and Americans don't need visas. They did let me just come over to Poland. And then once I was here, apply to stay. 
And once I put in my application, even though it took about six months to get approval, that whole time I could still stay in Poland. So the process was just like really, really quick. In the U.S., you can't you can't go to the U.S. on a tourist visa if you intend to stay. Like that's illegal. So, but in Poland, I was able to come on a tourist visa, and then once I'm in the country, apply to stay. Um, and another thing was like the health care. You know, like as soon as we came, like I didn't even have res- residency, and I got health care, and that was really important for us because I was already uh, eight eight months pregnant when we came, or seven or eight months pregnant when we came. So that was like, they gave me health care. They signed me up for health care quicker than him because I was pregnant. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. They gave me my number like before he got his and I'm not even a Polish citizen. So those things were like really important for us. Um, That's fascinating. Like, and over here, we're so focused right now on immigration. That's our big, you know, everybody's fighting over that. And it's it's fascinating to me that you could just go to Poland and they were like, it's cool. Just hang out. We'll get you some health care. You're good. And over here, we're so, um, I don't know, there's a lot of infighting and, and a lot of um, us first. And I... They're so protective of it. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah. And, it, and I also felt kind of, Sad because I had a friend who, one of my very best friends who um, had a son in the um, States and she, like, she's been my best friend since, since I was like little in school. Her name is Shannon. And she had a son and I just know like she's like such a great mom. Like she's just like, she's just such a like sweet, like chill, funny person. And so when she had her son, then of course, like we all want her to have more kids because we're like, we want the kind of kids that she would, her and her husband would raise, you know? And so, but she was like, nope, this is it. Just the one I'm not doing anymore. And she was like, you can have more kids like on my behalf or whatever. But I think a big part of that was because of the situation with healthcare, because she had to go back to work so soon and trying to juggle, you know, raising a child and go and working. And so I asked her, you know, well, if you didn't have to go, uh, I think he was, Maybe she went after three months or something because you know you, certain places you get leave but you don't get paid leave so you can you can you can take off but you're not getting paid for that time so I think he might have been like three months or something and maybe like closer to a year I asked her you know if you didn't have to go back to work then how long would you have stayed home with him and she was like oh I'd be home with him now if I didn't have to go back to work in order to take care of us you know and I was just like oh yeah that's really hard because in Poland women get a year off. Um, like they get the whole, whole year off with, uh, I think it's maybe it's 80% of their pay or I'm not sure if it's 80% or hundred percent, but they get a whole year off. And so then, um, I hadn't been working of course, of course, so I didn't get the same kind of situation, but I definitely, I have healthcare and two babies in two years. I wasn't, I wasn't planning to have them so close together, <laughs> but I just imagine like if we're in the U S then I might not have had the second child just because I couldn't, I couldn't manage it. But here I was like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, if, if I know my, my gynecologist appointments are going to be taken care of in my hospital and everything, you know, then I'm already out of work. Then it made more sense for us to go ahead and like keep going. And then when, and then when they're both around, you know, the same age, uh, going to school and stuff, then it will, you know, then I can transition back into, a different kind of work. Yeah, that the maternal leave and even paternal leave for fathers 
over here, it blows my mind. Um, women are going back after three weeks, four weeks. And I'm like, how? And I, I had I had twins, yeah. but um, I, I wasn't working at the time. And I was home with them until they were three. I, I can't imagine going back after three weeks. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Some someplace it was like two months. And I was I was telling my husband, you don't even know, like how to mom at two. Like you're just figuring out how to be a mom at two months. <laughs> like not not like because. Not because, yeah, you know, not in the sense that you don't know how to be a mom because I mean, I think that, you know, innately, but so much of being a good mom for me, at least, is knowing your kids. And you can't really know your kids a lot of time with them because they're, they're crying. The only way they communicate is crying. But then after a few weeks, at first it's just like they're just crying and it's just like crazy. They're crying all the time. What's going on? But after a few weeks, you start to notice, okay, like maybe they have different kinds of cries or maybe, you know, like you notice, oh, you know, they cry like this. Just get to know your, <laughs> just to get to know your kid, no, no matter how many kids you've had, because they're not all, I mean, it's fascinating. They're not all the same. Oh, they're know, not. So. I, yeah. Even my twins are completely different. They're night and day. I could tell them apart the day I had them. Oh, really? Their eyes were different. Yeah. But like, oh, um, but did they sleep at the same time and stuff or? Yes, I sleep trained. I um, when they were about four months old, we started sleep training them. Yeah, they had to be on the same schedule because it was really just me. I was married at the time, but um, there wasn't a lot of um, input on that side. So I mean, I, I needed them to sleep together because I needed to sleep, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's funny. I was, I was, you know, cause everything's going on with the, with the virus and, um, social distancing and things like that. And, um, someone had posted on Facebook, uh, no one will ever, uh, like starting this week, no one will ever again ask a stay at home mom what she does all day. <laughs> I was just like, feels like, you know, nothing and everything, you know, I've seen a lot of posts from moms like um, I've been homeschooling my kid for uh, about three days now and uh, teachers need to make a million dollars a week because this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the other ones like you're like uh, parents are about to find out that the teacher was not the problem. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's like, yeah, and for me, because I, I'm a very, very extroverted person, very busy body kind of person, like um like someone once told me that I remind them of a hummingbird and like since they said that I was like oh yeah I can I can totally see why they would say that um but yeah so even for me transitioning to being at home was a difficult transition just because I'm a person who's out of the house a lot um before um and so that's why I was kind of like you know then you're like what have I done all day well you've done nothing but you've done everything kind of thing you know you've just change diapers and it's just like you've just done the same thing over and over change a diaper feed a baby you know play read a book or something like that and so in a sense it feels like not much in terms of like tracking your progress like you do when you're in a working environment where you're like okay these are my accomplishments for the day but then on the other hand and it's everything because for a baby it's everything <laughs> you know that's all of their needs that you're meeting so it's like for I was talking to my husband about this as well like it's the difference is like you you see there like when you're working I think you see more of your own progress and when you're at home you kind of have to see yourself based on the child's progress not on your own because you're kind of doing the same things on a daily basis but then they're progressing you know now my daughter's saying the identifying letters in the alphabet you know and now she's um I, I'm seeing her you know exercise more um of an opinion and um 
identify things, dogs, you know, she's really into dogs and cats right now <laughs> um, and really excited about things like that. So it's like I kind of have to kind of gauge myself based on her progress, not based on the fact that I'm, you know, in the same pants <laughs> that I wore yesterday or that I'm. <laughs> yeah, that's something about motherhood that really struck me. And it was a really difficult transition for me was having to navigate maintaining a sense of self with um, parenting, because you, it's almost like it goes away. It's all about them. And so how do you maintain that? And especially when you're at home? Yeah. Yeah. And what did and what kind of things did you did you come to in terms of your realizations? With that? Um, well, I was home with them for three years, and then um, we had kind of like a family situation. My husband um, was actually arrested, so I wound up having to go back to work, and that's when I finally was able to start striking a balance. I did not do well at home, um, but I I think for a lot of women, we have to work. Um, the stay-at-home mom thing is not for everyone, so that's what saved me. Yeah. Oh, so you felt like you were like it was better for you. To yeah, be out of the I did not do well. Stay at home. It felt like Groundhog Day, yeah. like that movie Groundhog Day every single day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Everything must be like you're just it's, you're in the same routine. But yeah, for me, I really love um, I've always really loved kids. So I've always been into um, like before I had children, I've always worked in organizations that work with kids or written for kids and things like that. Um, but I still um, have that aspect where that's part of why I do the editing online. Um, in a sense, sometimes I feel like, how do I have energy to do this? You know, because I have no energy when they're, you know, um, when, they're, when she was really little. And now my son is, um, our son is um, three months and our daughter's a year and a half. So it's like a big difference from just having one kid. Like, I mean, you started out having two kids, so maybe you, you don't know, but like, you, you were just like overwhelmed from the very beginning because you started with two kids. But I started with one kid and now I have two and one is a baby. So it's just like, woo, like really tiring. And so in a sense, I'm like, how, should I even be using my extra energy to do like poetry editing or to do these artistic things? But for me, it's like, yeah, I have to, because that's what fills me back up, you know, in order to be able to do these these day-to-day -day things. And I still, yeah, struggle with like managing my time because I don't want them to have a lot of screen time. So that also means that I can't have as much screen time. And we kind of live in the age where so much of work is, with screens so but if I do that then my daughter will be you know she's just interested in whatever I'm interested in so it's been yeah I've been trying in the way that I interact with her in the books that I choose you know to to kind of put myself into those things so the way that I read the book <laughs> or the way that I um and uh, do things with her, like to put some of my like personality into that but yeah that was kind of part of what I wanted to talk to too because I had that whole like transition to being at home um, but also being in a country that's not my home country and, and in an area that doesn't speak my native language um, and so for me I was part of it like I'm not sure how much of the challenge I have is because I'm in Poland or just this is what moms experience when they first have kids I mean I'm sure it's both but for me that's always a question in my mind like oh how much of this is like because I'm in Poland and I'm not around people who speak English as their first language or who are like super comfortable in speaking English and how much of it is it just like, no, you're just a mom of a newborn and this is, you know, it is going to feel like a big transition because of that. 
I'm always like curious because we're thinking, you know, hopefully to move to a bigger city. Um, yeah, if if I'll get there and I'll just be like, oh, this was just because you know I'm home <laughs> with babies and not actually because of that. But yeah, which is I feel like I could. Ex- um, being here, yeah. So we, I should say, okay, we lived in Poland in a smaller place. It's called Alston. So there's like the bigger cities, Krakow and Warsaw. They're much more diverse. But we live in, a, it's not small for Poland standards, but for you know, like U.S. standards, it's a small, quite small city. And so people speak English here. If you go to a restaurant, you can often get a menu in English. But in terms of building relationships based on English, um not really in my town and um also people tend to learn english when they go to school so that's another challenge for me is that people are usually teaching or talking or teaching their kids english when they're school age so our kids are so young that you know you know one-year-olds aren't speaking english yet you know they're usually everyone's speaking polish at home they don't really have any reason to speak english unless they're a business person who needs it for business or you know they want their um their children to learn english in school so then they'll concentrate on it more so that has been like a challenge for me i tried to start um a little play group that was in english and um some moms came and it was really nice and i you know just asked them like what their feedback was and the other mom one of the moms was just like you know it was like she liked the activities and she liked the the structure of it but she felt like the English aspect of it was going to be too difficult for her child because she's not learning English anywhere else except for here, and it's once a week. So she felt like it's just going to be confusing for her because she hasn't even learned Polish yet, you know, totally. So it's just like it's fun for her, but she's she's like, you know, if you live with us or something or if you took care of her every day, then it would make sense. But for her to come and, like, learn English once a week, and that made sense. Like, I understand what she was saying. Like, it made sense to me. Okay, like, if she's not going to get this on a regular basis, then it's going to be um, kind of just more confusing to her when I'm trying to teach her these words in Polish. And so that's been my um, biggest challenge, I think, is finding a sense of community um, around people, uh, uh, like women my age who have young children, because it is a very particular period in life. I do have some English-speaking friends whose children are older, like my husband's um sister speaks like I would say perfect English and they have my niece and nephew are um like seven and nine and then I have a real there's one other American woman in this town (laughs) and she's like as soon as I got here she was just like you know we're gonna be friends kind of thing and she's like my best friend here her name is Nikki and her and I we also have like a great relationship but also her boys are older so her boys are I think five and eight I'm gonna feel so bad if I get this wrong (laughs) but yeah her boys are older so um we definitely have a a great relationship and I see her uh before the whole social distancing thing I was seeing her like at least once a week but it's different when your kids are old enough to like go meet up at a playground or um you know you can just meet up and your kids can go play together or go in their room whereas my kids aren't quite at that stage yet so I was really hoping to like find women who have kids around their age and that's been harder for me like I said because they're not necessarily speaking English to their kids or they just don't need to do it so you know why at this stage why would they and so like my husband's mom doesn't speak uh she speaks as much English as I speak Polish and Polish is a quite a difficult 
<laughs> yeah, and Polish is quite a dif- difficult language. Woo! They have um, like 17 different ways to say the number two or something like that. Like it's <laughs> it's really um, the the endings of words changes based on its um, the how it's being used in a sentence. So, like for instance, my name is Andrea. But my and in English, my name is always Andrea, no matter how you're speaking of me. But in Polish, like if you're speaking about Andrea or to Andrea or about something of Andrea's, like the, the pronunciation of my name would change because the ending would change. And so it's like that for a lot of words, which makes it like you can learn the word for banana. But when you're asking for two bananas or you're saying put the banana over there or does this have bananas in it? the word banana is going to change based on all these constructions <laughs> of how it's being used. And so my husband's just like, just learn the word banana and just say it and people will understand you, you know, but like in Polish, actually. Um, so I think in terms of me talking to people, it's not bad because people obviously can tell that I'm not from Poland and they're like appreciative of me of making the effort. But in terms of trying to understand people, I don't know if they're saying a word I already know in a different tense <laughs> with a different ending or if they're just saying a totally different word. So that's been like, for me, in terms of learning, yeah, I'm like, I can learn this language, but for me to get to the level where I'm learning it well enough to like have conversations with people and the kind of conversations you want to have with friends, you know, it's a different, this is something that's different for me too. You know, it's like, like I said, I can go out and people will speak English to me, but it's a different feeling to like be able to speak. I mean, I'm grateful for that at least, you know, that I can go and I can order things if I want to in English, but I'm also trying to do that in Polish. It's a different thing than being able to like sit with someone and say something besides, would you like some tea? And the weather is, you know, rainy today. You know, <laughs> like you want to be able to say just whatever. Right. <laughs> the ability to have a conversation and to, to feel like there's a connection there. How do you mitigate not having that? Like one thing that I started doing right before, right before we had this, um, uh, the, the virus was that I decided, okay, I was just going to join a play group um, for kids my uh, daughter's age because I was noticing that she was wanting more interaction. I can't give her as much attention, obviously, because we have another baby but also you know she's just growing in her needs and her wanting to interact and um so I was like and I really was missing that sense of community so I said you know I should just go and find a group because whatever level of Polish that they're speaking for kids is going to be a level that either I can understand or I can learn that level of it and it's just going to get me out and about you know and and usually the parents like I said the English is enough where um, usually if I ask someone they might be like oh no I don't really speak English but um, they can speak like basic English we can at least have some level of like interaction with each other and someone was recommending to me lately to not even ask people just start talking in English <laughs> and see like how they respond because Polish people tend to be a bit like um, critical of themselves so they'll say they don't speak English even though they do because they're like nervous that it's not good enough or something like that, you know? And I'm just like, and so people will ask me like, oh, how's the English or whatever? I'm like, I'm just happy that you're speaking English. This is your country. <laughs> you know, like, why would I be 
to of your English. But for them, they're just like, oh, my English isn't good enough. I haven't used it for many, um, a lot of long time. I'm like, <laughs> just fix me. Uh, so that was that's something that I um, started doing. And I, and, you know, once everything hopefully goes back to being open and things like that, I'm going to do that because it was, I, I actually just, you know, a couple of times a week, tried different groups. And then I had finally found one that I felt like, yeah, okay, this is a good one for me. And so I definitely would encourage if there's like mom who's living in a community that, you know, that's not her culture or her country or her language to, to find like one of these groups. And then eventually that can be a way. So I was doing this and I guess um, another mom was, she had just moved, she's from Poland, but she had just moved back to this community. Um, and so she, I guess, was doing this as well. And so then the last place that I tried that I really liked, she was like, oh, hey, she, she'd start talking to me and she, in English. And I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> and she was like, hey, I saw you at this other play group. I was there with my son and, you know, I noticed like, you know, you're looking around because I'm also looking around and I was just like, oh, this is great. She approached me. She approached me in English. <laughs> and so it was just like nice. And she's like, oh, yeah, you know, living. I think she's living in the UK. So she's also just like kind of getting back into the um, getting back into the city and figuring out like, you know, uh, what to do with her sons during the day. And she's um, also pregnant again. So this is even just, yeah making that effort has been um, nice, but I've made a lot of, I feel like I've made a lot of effort like online trying to find groups or just inviting people to have conversations just if they need to practice. I've met up with like university students who were studying linguistics to help them, you know, and part of it is like by nature, of course I love like helping people and um, developing, but it's also, yeah, for me to have that interaction, it's really, <laughs> it's really nice. So. Um, I feel like I made a lot of effort and I'm still making effort and it is tough. Like I, I definitely would prefer to be in a bigger city and would recommend for people to try to be in whatever the most international cities are in their country. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just saying this because I think sometimes there's this misconception that like um, you don't have friends or things are tough because like people don't like you or they don't care about you or something like that. Or um, I guess I just want to say that I'm making a lot of effort because I'm a very outgoing person. And so people kind of assume like, oh, I'm going to have friends no matter where I go. And, you know, I'm going to be involved in things no matter where I go. True. But it's not, be it's not because people are just like coming up to me in the street and being like, hey, do you want to be my friend? You know, I am still making that effort. Like it might seem like it's like that sometimes to my friends that like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, because you're outgoing and people are interested in you. And I'm like, yeah, but I still have to put in the work. So I wouldn't want any mom to think like, well, if they've been somewhere for a few months and they don't really have close friends, it's because they're not likable or because, you know, people don't care about them or something. Thing, but it's just like you know people have kids they have other obligations I've had to remind people like people canceled on me plenty of times I've hosted things and no one showed up you know like I've had to go through that whole thing even being like a super outgoing <laughs> like people person so I can imagine if you're not like that that could be very discouraging for you um when people cancel or like if you only have three friends and they're <laughs> not available you're just like oh well, that's how oh my gosh when my friend Nikki was in the states they went to the states for a few weeks I was just like we need to move now 
like and I handled it. I was just like my husband, I was just like, I you know, I don't have any friends and this and this and that. And then she like came back the next week and I was like, Oh yeah, she's coming back. <laughs> but for that period I was just like, uh uh-uh, uh, this is not gonna yeah, but then she came back and then my mom came to visit. How how do you get to see your family a lot? Do they come to visit a lot? Um not a lot. I mean, well, I should say I was in Israel for um, six years. So at this point, we're kind of used to like the once a year thing, you know, so it wasn't like a transition where I was with my family a lot. And then now I'm not. It's like I was in Israel for six years. And then the two years before that, I was in Portland, Oregon, and my family lives in D.C. So there was already kind of like there used to be Andrea being off somewhere doing something. So my mom came. um a couple of times she came to Israel like for my birthday once and then she came when we got married and then I visited um the U.S. um I, like maybe once a year once every two years and then so my mom we moved to Poland my mom came for our daughter's birth and then she also came for our son's birthday. that's cool I'm it's good that you get to be able to see each other yeah and my uncle came twice also I'm really close to my uncle um Andrew I'm Andrea and he's Andrew um and he came twice also and then my eldest sister came with um two two of my nieces um so my middle sister she hasn't been able to come she has five kids (laughs) so I don't expect that um yeah, like even just the seats alone, you know, it's just like on an airplane would just be. So I don't expect that she would come unless she's just going to come with like the youngest one or something. So that was part of the reason we were planning to go to the States in April um, to see her for the first time. She hasn't even met my uh, husband yet. Um, but yeah, we'll see how those plans go. But yeah, we're supposed to go in like two weeks. <laughs> What are you guys seeing? Um, what's the situation there with the with the whole coronavirus thing? Are you having to, what are the regulations and the rules and the social distancing situation there? Similar, where exactly are you in uh, this state? So I'm about two hours north of Pittsburgh, right on Lake Erie. Okay. Um, so is it, uh, is it like the whole school closures and businesses and our schools closed last friday so a week ago um and up until about sunday or monday the the regulation was um limiting um gatherings to groups of 250 or less so like no sports games no major concerts or anything like that but you could still yeah you could still go out and have fun um but it just recently i think on monday or tuesday they changed it and now it's groups of 10 or less um, so we're really kind of, Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's what it is here. It's been, uh, I think it's probably been for at least a week, like the groups of 10. So basically the first they did the schools and then they said like museums, malls, cinemas kind of thing at the beginning. And then it became like, uh, pretty much the things that are open are groceries, like the gyms closed, like the, I think just grocery stores. Restaurants can do um, delivery or takeaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's here too. Uh, yeah, I went to. I remember we went to the uh, restaurant and they were like no cash, so you could only pay with your card. And I thought, oh, it, well, first I was kind of surprised that they were open, so I was like, that's cool because I didn't re- know about the delivery or takeaway thing. We were just kind of seeing, okay, is anything open? But then I was like, oh, well, that's kind of smart because they're not, you know, they're trying to avoid taking bills. And touching, so I just slid my card. So no, no one had to touch anyone. <laughs> but yeah, so it's pretty well shut down. Um, I think we um, had the flu 
um, the last two weeks. So we were already, I was already self-quarantined because me and Azalea were sick. Me and my daughter, we were sick. So then it was just kind of like, okay, now everyone's doing it. But, I mean, I guess we could have something else. We technically could have the virus. You never know. We were never, I didn't get tested or anything. But it was just kind of like, it's going to be the same treatment for it whatever you have so I was kind of like you know well what's for me what's the point to get tested unless you have something out of the norm you know what I mean do you see are people reacting like with panic or hysteria there because over here starting a week two weeks ago I couldn't even buy a roll of toilet paper people are ridiculous is it that way over Um, there right now you know I haven't been out as much um I think uh, like I said, because I've been uh, sick, but I think it's not like hysteria, but I, I mean, I think people are concerned. Everyone's talking about it a lot, you know, but I don't know that it's, it's not like you can't go anywhere and get stuff. Um, someone was commenting that the youth was uh, disappearing. And so someone, I'm in this like uh, English speakers and poet group on Facebook, and someone was like, why is the, why is the youth disappearing? And they're like, so Polish, because Polish people are like, we're going to bake our own bread, you know, because um, fresh bread is really uh, popular. Like, that's just also one of the great things about Poland is that there's very much a culture of like buying from little farmers markets and like people getting groceries multiple times a week. So, you know, we kind of have more of a buy in bulk culture in the United States where it's like if you can go once to the grocery store for the whole week or like for the whole month, if you go to, you know, one of those big uh, retail stores, um, those clubs, and that's great. But here it's like very normal for people to go every day and pick up fresh bread or produce or things like that. So um, people were buying out the yeast so that they can um, make their own bread every day while the um breakeries might be if they close you know and stuff like that but yeah I think also I wonder if weather has anything to do with it because um I was talking to my friend from Australia earlier today and it's warm there it's such an outdoor culture so so much of um their lifestyle is really outside whereas in Poland and I don't know how it is exactly where you live but I know you know for a lot of the, at least for the southern United States, or the places where it's more warm than it is cold, um, it could feel more like panicky, like, oh, we have to stay in kind of thing. But um, in the winter in Poland, usually it's quite cold. Um, and this winter, the sun was setting at like 3.30. So <laughs> you're already, like, I'm not going to be out with the kids, like, after dark. So it's our, like, you're already kind of used to being in the house at least earlier you know what I mean like I was I mean it was horrible but you know I'm in the house from 3:34 anyway during the winter um now it's a bit more like the spring but I guess I, I'm just I guess I'm just saying like um maybe this culture because it's a colder culture it's a more um family oriented culture from what I have experienced that they would handle it a bit better <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like definitely, I've heard that there's been long lines and stuff, but I haven't heard any like fighting. It's been crazy, and I think that our media has really kind of blown it up. And I'm not one to blame the media, and the media is evil. But I really feel like. Um, we're seeing more cases now, and so every day the media reports um, 
a hundred new cases here, a thousand new cases there, and we're all panicking. But the, it's it's just a function of the fact that they were always there. They're just testing more now. So yeah, and that's the other thing is that yeah, I'm totally into that too. Because at first I was like not even worrying about it. It's just like this is a hot thing that people are reporting about, so it seems more important that it is because everyone's talking about it. Um, but then you know it is spreading faster than other than other diseases. But yeah, I felt like the same way. And the percentage of people, first of all, when I was listening, it was like 80% of people are going to be fine, which is a very high percentage of people are going to have the same, um, same as if you just had the flu or something like that. You know, you know, wash your hands. It was all the guidance and all the ways to treat it. Sorry. Um, are this were the same. So I kind of felt like, okay, so really there's no reason like I said I could have had it or it might not have been the flu but there's no reason for me to go and get tested if the way to deal with it I don't like I'm not really into going to hospital <laughs> like unless I really need to so it's like there's no reason for me to get tested unless something happens during the time that I'm sick that was like a red flag for me so then how many other people are there like me who are probably like younger people <laughs> Um, who are just like, okay, I'm just going to self-quarantine myself and just, you know, uh, and just wait it out and see what happens. And if something bad develops, then go. But yeah, that was one of the things where my friend was like, well, they're not giving tests to everyone. And I was kind of thinking like, well, should they give tests to everyone? Maybe, maybe they should just be giving tests to people who are showing like something that's a cause for concern. Because if you're testing everyone then that's taking you longer to get to the people who are really going to need intervention like if i'm you're just testing me because oh my throat feels a little bit scratchy or i'm coughing or whatever then like it that's you know that's a test that could have gone to someone who what is really okay i've been sick for two weeks or like and this is the thing that they're saying about masks you know like save the masks for people who are sick or who <laughs> or for the hospitals to give them out or something but for a normal person to wear a mask like you're staying home anyway just <laughs> Or you're distancing anyway, you know, like I had actually just started doing a podcast um, called To Mother. And I was saying this in my um, my last episode as well. Like I'm one of those people who's much more likely to get upset over like trivial things than big things. I don't know why. Like I'm really it's, it's much easier for me to be stressed out because someone didn't fill up the water filter. <laughs> Or, like, something, like, totally just, like, what are, you know, like, minor day-to-day things than, like, this kind of stuff. Because this kind of stuff, for me, it's, like, you. I'm doing the best that I can. It's, in a sense, beyond my control in terms of a, an anxiety thing. And, the, and for me, the quality of life, for me, is better if I stay calm. So, it's, like, it doesn't mean that I don't care. I care. Like, I'm washing my hands a lot. I'm going to be conscious of like, you know, like I'm taking the kids out or that kind of thing. But for me to be like fearful about it, I just, I just don't see how it in any way could be helpful. Um, or for me to like go out and buy, buy up everything of something. It's just like, it's, it's curious to me because I'm one of the people who are, are doing this, like really stocking up, like then what's going to happen? Like, are they planning to share with people or like, are they thinking like, I'm just going to stay in my house for like, 
Andrea Hope is a global citizen with a fascinating history, navigating a unique set of challenges as an international mother in an interracial relationship, living in a country that is not her own, in a place where very few people speak her native language. In the bonus material, Andrea goes into great detail on what it was like growing up as an African-American woman in the United States, but feeling separate from both the African-American and the white communities with pressures to fit in and behave in certain ways coming from all sides. You can unlock another hour of content with Andrea by visiting patreon.com slash two moms day drinking and becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month. If you liked what you heard, share it with a friend and come back next week for another episode. The music for this podcast was written and produced by my father, Bob Gross, on his goddamn electric ukulele. I'm Stacey Gross, and this has been Two Moms Day Drinking. See you next week.